Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast, where we explore ideas around mental health, equality and social justice. I'm your host, Thea Joshi, and in each episode we talk to people either with lived experience, those working in a specific area of mental health, or some of our own team, to share how we're working in the fight for equality in mental health. So I recently caught up with Alex Augustine, one of our peer researchers, to hear about how his experience shapes the way he works. And this was such a brilliant, honest and challenging conversation, with Alex highlighting the corrosive impact racism is having on black people's mental health. He also makes a really key point for both the voluntary sector and those who fund it, around commissioning the grassroots organisations who are best placed to meet a community's needs over larger organisations who might submit impressive bids but don't actually have the expertise. So I hope you enjoy. So I'm here today with Alex Augustine. Hi, hello. Hiya. So you were telling me that you've been working at the centre in one way or another since around 2013. Yeah. Um, But you are officially our uh, lead peer researcher or our peer research associate, many other titles. So it would be great to hear a little bit more about the work that you've been doing recently as part of the centre. So recently I've been working across um, a few projects for the centre. Yeah, as you mentioned, I've been working um, with the centre since 2013 on a freelance basis. But in February 21, they offered me a part-time contract, which I happily accepted. Since then, I've been working on... Um, a project um, with St. Giles and a newly formed team called Gateway, the Quick Gateway Project. Um, Gateway are an organisation made up of um, mostly clinical psychologists and St. Giles are offering youth workers and together they form a team who go up, who aim to meet the needs of young people um, so they can meet um, emotional needs, you know, mental health needs and sort of social and, and practical needs as well for young people. Um, so I've been interviewing everyone involved in that project to find out whether that project is working um, the way that it was hoped it would. Um, so that's one project. I've also been working on the London uh, Violence Reduction Unit project, uh, which we've been speaking to people in seven different areas across London um, to find out why their area um, have such a high, such high rates of, uh, youth violence and deprivation and whether there's a link between the two. And I've also been doing a little bit of work on shifting the dial, which is a part, which is part two of, uh, earlier projects, um, that I worked on when I first joined the center, uh, which is looking at, um, well, it's called shifting the dial because it's about shifting the dial on young black men's mental health, you know, how to build mental resilience and, and, um, that sort of thing. So yeah, I've been, I've been busy, um, and representing the center well, I hope. Amazing. And 100% we have. Um, so obviously we did a piece of work earlier this year, specifically on young black men's mental health during COVID. That was part of the shifting the dial work. Um, it'd be great to hear a little bit more about that project. Like I know it's we're based in Birmingham, working alongside grassroots level organisations there. Um, but could you tell us a little bit more about the project? So initially, um, I went to the first couple of meetings, and it was supposed to be about 
um, building, um, how to build mental resilience in young black men in Birmingham. Um, I guess, um, like I said, it was given a name shift in the dial because it's about shifting the dial on um, that topic. So I guess progressing that conversation. Um, after the first initial meetings, though, I was sort of re not removed, but I wasn't involved in that project for a long time. There was a massive chunk in the middle um, where I worked on other things and, you know, life uh, was happening. And then only recently, um, I've come back in to the project to sort of, um, conduct some interviews with some of the project leads. I've run a couple of focus groups with some of the participants as well. In terms of, um, the young, the young men who attend, um, the various, cause it's, it's, um, two separate projects coming together to form Shift in the Dar. It's, um, the Light Post, who are a small theatre group, and First Class Legacy, who are like a bigger organisation, who usually have quite a few young people coming to their events. They'll put on events to try to sort of um, have role models or other Black entrepreneurs or, pe you know, people that can be looked up to in the, in the Black community. They'll have these guys speaking to the young people and encouraging them and sort of giving up blueprints as to how to kind of um, pave their way to success, if you will. Um, and then the Light Post, the theatre group, they try to use um, their acting skills, uh, theatrical sort of scenes and things that they create to tackle certain issues, whether it's to do with gender, identity, you know, race, religion, anything like that, um, mental health. So... The two separate projects have been doing more in terms of keeping to themselves and keeping true to what they do, giving young people a place to go, you know, helping them to build resilience, supporting each other. That work sounds incredible and it's like obviously so needed. And I wondered if you could just tell me a little bit more about kind of what is the centre's role in that? Obviously, we're working, as you say, with Nightpost and with First Class Legacy, who are delivering some of these kind of pieces of work. What's the centre's role and what's your role within that? Me personally, my role, I um, representing the centre, I think that we should be, again, looking to find out whether this partnership is working well and doing what it says on the tin. Um, everything that we hoped would come from the project, um, are these hopes realised or, if not, what needs to be improved? Amazing. I don't know if it's too early to ask this, but have there been any kind of early findings um, from the sort of the interviews and the focus groups that you've been holding? Yeah, so the projects themselves, the, the two separate projects, First Class Legacy and um, Lightpost, they do really well with what they do because they were doing it before we came along and they'll be doing it long after we've we've um we're no longer working with them hopefully you know they do what they do very well with with the next round of interviews that are going to be taking place it's just reminding the project leads that you know you you are doing what you do and and it's and you're doing it very well um you're building uh mental health in young black men and we would like to capture that in an honest way yeah that's amazing um so i wondered if you could just tell me a little bit more as well about how you personally kind of got into peer research um, and a little bit more about your story. So how did I get into peer research? 
I was uh, a youth worker at another youth charity and I was going into different settings where young people were, young people who are either in gangs or at risk of joining gangs or deemed as naughty. I was spending time with these young people and, you know, being a role model um, to them, speaking to them, working with them, usually using like music or creative writing as a tool to engage with them and, you know, build rapport with them. I was, I guess, you know, headhunted or recruited by Lorraine Khan, who at the time was an associate director, I think, yeah, uh, to be trained as a peer researcher so that I can do what I was doing at the time, but, you know, more nationally. So wherever the center needed um, to work with young black men, I might be able to help. It just so happened that um, a project came up in Birmingham, which was up my street. And I was involved from the very beginning of that project. So yeah, that's how I, that's how I got involved with the centre, uh, 2013 till date. Yeah, that's really helpful background. I'm really interested to understand a bit more about how your own lived experience um, affects the work that you do and the way you carry out your role as a peer researcher. How has that shaped um, your work. So, um, growing up myself, you know, I, I was also, I was a naughty kid. I, I was the, the young people, the young black men who we are engaging today. I was them, um, as a, as a child myself. And I know as an adult now, as a professional, I can look back and see what was missing. I can see that there were a load of me's. Um, who exist today that just weren't around back then. Um, and so all, you know, all my needs back then were unmet. Um, and I sort of just would take things into my own hands and, and ended up getting into a life of crime, you know, being in a gang from very early. And that's, that's just what it was. Um, that, that was just the standard. That's just what you did back then. Um, and I guess everything, all my experiences back then growing up, um, that those are the things that helped me to be able to relate to the young people now that we, that we work with and to be able to you know, connect with them, relate with them, work with them, co-produce with them. Um, I have a unique sort of, I have unique perspectives on both sides, which not many people get to have. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why, it's one of the reasons why I'm, uh, I, I believe I, I do what I do well today. Yeah, 100%. And um I think, yeah, obviously you, me, we're, we're very clear and the centre as a whole that um, lived experience has to be at the heart of what we do and has to be at the heart of research because we're not, if we're not um, hearing from the people who've actually experienced the things that we are studying, um, then we are removed, then we can become kind of in our ivory towers or whatever. And so peer research is obviously a massive part of that. So just to touch on that, so the, that's actually true, yeah. And the frustrating thing is, when we collaborate with an organization who have members who don't have the lived experience, 
yet they want to be the ones to sort of lead on a project where the lived experience is what's most needed. You know, you, you want to connect with young black men who, you know, who have mental health issues, unmet needs, whatever the case may be, are in gangs. You have um, peer researchers, not just myself, but others who have lived experience of those things and can probably best relate to those young black men and be able to feed back what the needs are. Um, but these, you know, people like myself and others are sort of put to one side and not really listened to enough, you know, not listened to enough. And therefore it leads to projects being just regurgitative, just, you know, doing what's been done before for years, you know, decades and producing no fruit or, you know, some something that looks like a result, but actually it's not going to create a long lasting change. It's just, it almost feels like many organizations want, most organizations, if not all, want to be in this phase where they can just say, yeah, we're trying to do this. We're trying to bring change. We're trying to meet the needs. We're trying to, and just want to be there forever instead of actually take doing some positive risk taking, listening to the people who you need to be listening to and actually using the guidance, the guidance of lived experience, um, lived experience itself and you know, also the sort of academic side of those with, with the degrees in psychology and whatnot, combining the two to work together to actually make effective change happen, you know, actually do something rather than just, you know, putting the, the lived experience to one side and just repeating what's been done before over and over and making it look like uh, things are happening when actually when, if I can use a quote, that man isn't able to fish for himself. He's still relying on the fish that you gave him, if that makes sense. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And um, that's such a crucial point to make. And yeah, I think that's that thing, isn't there, about if you keep doing the same thing, you'll keep getting the same results. And I think for so long, lived experience um, in its various forms has, as you say, been like put to the side or has been kind of wheeled out when it felt like it was necessary or helpful or, you know, interesting. And then kind of, again, shoved to the side for kind of the, in quotes, you know, real research to happen. And instead, what we are saying is, no, like lived experience needs to be at the core. You need to listen to the people who are experiencing stuff if you want to create services that are actually going to help them in any sustainable way, as you say. And, um, yeah, like you said, empowering people yeah, to make their own way rather than kind of the, the, the idea of like doing to people um, instead of like working with them. And yeah, that's, that's critical, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And you were talking um, quite a bit there about sort of the unmet needs of specifically young black people within that work of shifting the dial. What are the needs that you have been seeing coming out of shifting the dial, out of the work with St Giles, or working with young people, young people from racialized communities or specifically young black people like what are the needs that you're seeing coming out so black people usually don't have inheritance 
or a future. Um, same thing, usually, you know, pretty much. There's just, there's something about not seeing a bright future, not knowing that that security is there, that keeps you worried, constantly worried, um, constantly chasing money, um, this illegal activity, that illegal activity, this job, that job, can't hold down a job. There's just a lot of uncertainty, if I was to sum it up in one word. All of those things come down to like just lack of security, lack of a future and uncertainty. Um, and that's, that's the overarching sort of issue that's coming out. It leads to negative mental health issues, you know, um, panic attacks and, and heartburn and high blood pressure and, you know, suicidal tendencies and all these, um, sort of all these issues. And when you add to that society, societal and, and the media's sort of, um, perception and projected perceptions of black people, um, and, and, and the drip feed, the negative drip feed effects that those have, um, all of that just is, is just not conducive to a positive, you know, positive well-being and a positive future. Um, across the different projects that I've worked, worked on, um, there are, you know, there are different, in, in different ways, similar, the same things are being said. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it's bang on, you know, across two different things, three different projects. But sometimes it's like the, the, the sentences are tweaked slightly by people are saying the same thing. Um, and it was there before we all got here. It will, it will be the same after we've all left and there are different researchers and different participants. It, it will be the same. So yeah, I think again, I come back to the point of, we, we have to, we have to, we need funders to be funding the, the right people, not necessarily the, not necessarily the organizations that have the best history and the best bid writers and, and who can use the best language and know what to say and how to say it. Because those guys won't necessarily put, they won't do the effective work and not necessarily, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying definitely they won't but they won't necessarily be able to relate and do the effective work where it's needed in the black community. Whereas an organization that's run by black people will, it, you know, most probably will, but they don't have the excellent bid bidders, the bid writers and the, and the, you know, the history and the financial history and all of that stuff. So that's the problem. You know, if there's a loan that's needed, there's a loan that's needed to fund this black organization that wants to genuinely, um, you know, do good work in order to build up this black community here. If I, if I walk into a bank dressed as myself, not, not knowing the correct language to use, but my heart's in the right place. I, I'm genuinely going to do the work. I'm, I'm probably going to get turned down. Whereas if, if, um, 
my white counterpart walks in just as themselves and and uses you know their language and everything like that and they do know what to say and everything they're the ones that that, that are going to get the funds and that that wouldn't matter if they were going to go and actually know what to do with those funds um and spend those funds in the right areas but that's that's usually not the case um and then unfortunately the ones who can actually make a difference the gatekeepers the role models they don't get the opportunity and so the cycle continues yeah and i and that's what we're seeing isn't it we're literally seeing that play out within organizations and it's like yet another example of um white supremacy and um white privilege that as you say um big organizations um, perhaps with like more infrastructure will know how to play the game and more likely to get funding than um, black-led or grassroots organizations who are actually working in communities and actually know how to reach people and we're literally seeing the impact of like um, institutional racism play out at that level as well um, and then as you said before about the impact that that is literally having on um the young black people that you have been working with in these various projects, like the way that we're seeing um, all of that uncertainty, like that was the word you used, like that uncertainty and the impact that that has on your sense of well-being and your sense of like hope for the future. And yeah. it's it's what we keep saying, isn't it? That like you can give the best mental health support in the world, um, but if people don't have like you know, yeah, job security, income security, um, safe housing that, that's not kind of going to get pulled from their, their feet. And it's all kind of a bit pointless. You've got to see the whole picture that someone is dealing with. Um, yeah. And so it's not okay just, I mean, we, we need to provide better mental health services for young black people, people in racialized communities. We know we need to do that. But even that on its own is not really going to um, square the circle. It's not going to pro- provide any kind of equality if we're not looking at the bigger picture. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. So I'm really grateful for what we've covered. And I guess I'd love to just ask you finally, um, and this is a big question, but, um, what do you think is needed? And I know that's a massive question and we've just clarified how big it is and how holistic a picture we need, but what is needed to address that sense of insecurity uncertainty that has this eroding effect on mental health so i'll use myself as an example before we started doing this um we were talking about taking a break and you were saying to me look after yourself you know don't don't you know don't work like that take take a day sort of thing and um i i was covering i was explaining why i work the way i do and that's part of the answer to this question. I know that I represent, um, I'm going to say black men. I don't know if I could say black people, maybe, but I, you know, what I do know is that I represent, um, black men who didn't, um, fancy school, you know, who are, who weren't sort of able to connect with school, traditional, schooling in the way that most others do and have been able to um who have different learning styles who 
and and therefore weren't able to get the degrees or stick it out and are now sort of considered I don't know considered late bloomers <laughs> um trying to trying to make a way trying to use what they do know to to develop themselves and and progress and build um a life and or future for themselves when you're in that boat it means that you do look a bit like a workaholic um there's there's a ironically there's a there's a stereotype that black men are lazy and and don't want to work but that's definitely not true um i think because the traditional sense of schooling and education isn't designed for us it makes it look as though we don't want to ap apply ourselves um we have different ways of learning we have different ways of understanding you know which help us to sort of develop the same but just in a in a, in a we have different ways of taking on the information and retaining it um the traditional sense just isn't it for me personally and the ones that I'm speaking for so i am where i am now which means i have to work hard i i i have to have two or three jobs um if i don't want to do anything illegal and there'll be plenty out there that have to that are um and it's not to show off it's not to go on holiday all the time it's it's just for survival it's um to be able to pay bills and to be able to um you know look after yourself you know maslow's hierarchy of needs and to be able to just if it allows it have some savings and in most cases that's not even possible because things can arise and that means those savings are gone dental procedure uh mold i don't know anything <laughs> um so because because we don't have that we don't have that sort of bright future in education we don't have chances are we don't have the, the you know the inheritance from a, a a parent or grandparent who's passed away or whatever we have to make do for ourselves so that's why that's why the word hustle is very popular in black culture because that's what you got to do you got to hustle you got to you know i know the drug dealers made that word famous but you know in the sense that i mean it, it you have to be constantly working in order to um gain as, as as much funds as you can and even even then usually it's just enough for survival so to answer your question i think i i need I mean, I need my employers to kind of bear with me if I make mistakes or get things wrong or slack here and there. I know that I can't, by the way. I, I know I can't make mistakes. I don't feel like I can. Um, you know, which is another thing, which, which is ties into the job security thing. It's almost like you're always, it's a bit like you're almost, you're almost one mistake or one argument away from being asked to leave in, in one way or another um but like yeah so you, you kind of need the people who if you do have a job you you kind of need people to bear with you bring you on and and, and support you in in and try to understand you need understanding um it, it is a big question and and that's that answer is just one answer that's just one part and there's 
multiple other parts, which we obviously don't have time to go into now. But yeah, that's that's one aspect. Yeah, as you say, it was a very big question that I did just spring on you. But um, what you shared there is just an incredibly valuable insight that we need to take on and we need to apply when we're talking about um, improving policy and, and actually making change happen. Um, but Alex, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I think we're going to have to have you back on again because there's so much more that we need to be talking about there. Um, so we'd love to have you on again in the future. But thank you. Thanks for what you shared. We are so grateful for your work. Uh, yeah, thanks so much. Hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find out more about our work by visiting our website. And to join us in the fight for equality and mental health, please do donate at www.centreformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate. See you next time.